The Way BK podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation He provides for all who submit to Him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss The Way. What's up, everybody? Thanks again for tuning into The Way BK podcast. We're here, we're going to be looking at Acts chapters 3 and 4, so if you grab a Bible and open that up, you can pause this and get one so that you'll be able to follow along. Everything we say, we're true our best to just say what the scriptures teach and uh, help others understand it, and we ourselves are seeking to understand it. If you're listening for the first time or if you've listened before, check us out online, thewaybk.com, on Facebook, The Way BK, and even on YouTube, The Way BK. And uh, all these are, we're trying to provide gospel resources for people, especially here in Brooklyn. Um, but understand, we're not, we're not just putting out resources online just for fun. We really, uh, our real hope is to make real connections with people so that uh, we can learn what the will of the Lord is. So that if you don't understand the will of the Lord, that we can help you understand that. And you can follow him and obey him the way that he wants. Uh, that's our goal. And that's our goal as we're studying through the book of Acts um, these days. We're trying to understand what does it mean to be a part of Jesus' kingdom? What does it mean to follow after King Jesus? And we're in chapter 3. The beginning of Acts chapter 3, a really powerful thing happens. Peter and John, two of Jesus' apostles, come to the temple. They're going to meet some of their brethren at the hour of prayer. And then they find a, a man who is lame. And the man asks for alms, but they basically say, um, we don't have any money to give you, but instead we can give you something better. And they raise him up, this man who had been lame for years and years and years and years and years. Boom, he's healed. And everybody knew about it. It's a public miracle that was a true miracle. Everybody who knew about it was shocked. And they say, what is going on? And so, Caleb, that kind of opens up uh, an opportunity for Peter and John to talk about Jesus and to help us understand some things about life in the kingdom. Yeah, so the, the reaction to this first miracle is really the rea- the same reaction to the work of, a, of the Spirit in chapter 2, right? Mm-hmm. People were amazed, they're wondering, they're astonished, and, they're cl- and he's clinging to Peter and John. Um, so all the people are running up to them as they see this guy that you can imagine, right? He's been there their whole life. Um, we're going to learn later on, more than 40 years old. Um, this guy's been sitting at the at the temple every day, um, and uh, so P- he probably was well known. So when people see him standing up and walking and leaping and praising God, uh, it would have been quite a shock for them. So Peter uh, re- recognizes very quickly that people are going to or are getting the wrong idea about how this happened. Even though Peter says to the man, "In the name of Jesus." rise up and walk. People are starting to get the idea that, that maybe there's something great about the apostles here, that, that maybe they have some supernatural power or uh, something amazing. They derive amazing themselves. Yeah, that come from, from their own greatness. And so Peter, Peter basically says, what are you looking at, at us for? As if we're the ones who've, uh, who've made him walk by our own power, our own holiness. And, and, and he uses this as an opportunity to point the crowd back to Jesus. Um, what I love about this is um, and you'll see this all throughout the all throughout the book, right? Um, Peter is giving them evidence that God has glorified His servant Jesus. This healing is meant to show them that the one that the the servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, 
when he decided to release him. Verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. So, so Peter's trying to stress a couple of ideas here. And he did this in the first sermon too. He's trying to stress that uh, Jesus' death uh, was, was caused by the rejection and the opposition of the people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also trying to stress the idea that even though people were opposing him and rejecting him and delivered him over to death, that didn't stop God from accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish. God raised him up from the dead. God began his kingdom. God has poured out his spirit, right? And so, and I think that's important because actually that's at the heart of everything in the book of Acts. Um, it's ironically right after Peter preaches this sermon about how Jesus was rejected and Jesus was opposed and Jesus was killed and God raised him up from the dead. We're going to start to see... Uh, the apostles, too, being rejected, being opposed, being arrested. Um, some will eventually be delivered over to death. And, and, and as this begins um, to unfold, what, what the book of Acts is going to continually highlight is how God overcomes all the opposition. Though Satan is trying to do everything he can to destroy the work uh, that God is doing through his servant Jesus, God continually works to overcome that opposition. Which is a powerful thought. Um, I'm not even sure how to articulate this exactly, but it seems to me those are pretty, it's a pretty common error. One is whenever things are going wrong, a lot of times people, even people who believe in the Lord, can kind of freak out and think, like, the sky is falling. Mm-hmm. But actually, the story of the gospel is, well, maybe not. Right. Maybe actually this is part of God's plan. Right. Um, to bring restoration for the world. I mean, that's what Jesus' death was not so much a tragedy of human sin, although it was, but it was more so something that God had actually planned out. On the flip side, people can be like, oh, well, it's all God's plan. It's all God's plan. Well, no, sometimes things happen because people are bad and they're doing bad things. So that doesn't absolve you of the bad things. You know, oh, it's God's plan. Well, yeah, but Peter also says, yeah, but uh, you guys you did a bad did. thing. It was God's plan, but you guys did a bad thing. It wasn't right. God's plan for you to be sinful, you know, and to do all that stuff. So it's kind of a helpful just ideological um, tension that he's bringing out here. Yeah, and he doesn't absolve them from responsibility, right? right. I mean, he, he, he tells them in this uh, sermon, so since you did this and since God overcame what you did, you need to repent. You need to turn away from your wickedness. You need to turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. And, and again, this comes back to Jesus, right? Uh, one of the words that he uses here to describe the one that they killed in verse 15 um, is the archegos of life or the author of life. Or um, you may have another word there. Um, but the idea of the archegos is like the first to lead. And I like that um, because you think about this. It's as if God, when God raises up Jesus, Jesus is the first in a long procession. Um, God is actually using his servant Jesus to bring about healing and ref- times of refreshing, verse 20, uh, the, the, the restoration of all things, but verse 21. This is the beginning of God restoring all things and making mm-hmm. all things new and, and restoring his kingdom to what he wants it to be. Uh, and, and so that's helpful, though, because two things. It, it, it tells us that, one... Uh, Jesus is setting an example for us to follow in, 
Um, which means that we shouldn't be surprised if we're going to follow Jesus if we face opposition. We shouldn't be surprised if we face rejection. We shouldn't be surprised if, uh, if life is sometimes difficult or hard. It was certainly difficult for him. But it also shouldn't, it's that, that, that suffering, that frustration, that persecution, that hardship that we may suffer um, shouldn't, shouldn't uh, bury us in discouragement. It shouldn't lead us into depression. It ought, it ought to remind us of the story of Jesus, and it ought to strengthen our faith that, no, God can work even through opposition. God can overcome the opposition um, to accomplish his will. We're going to see that even more in, in chapter 4, because right about the time as they're speaking to the people all these words, right, um, and Peter's telling them, that, that, that he's raised up his servant Jesus and sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Right as Peter's saying these words, uh, the leaders of the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees come up and, uh, and they arrest him. Uh, they put him in custody. But then the next line in chapter 4 and verse 4 is that even though they're in custody, many of those who'd heard the word believed and the number came to be about 5,000. So none of what, none of the opposition, none of the rejection, none of what Satan is doing actually has any effect on stopping the progress of the gospel. God's truth continues to spread. God's kingdom continues to grow. And the gospel is spreading to more and more people. Which I guess is valuable. And I'm thinking, you know, some people who are listening to us talk about this are followers of Jesus, devoted to Jesus, etc., so there's obviously some some value here in that in uh, for those people for those of us who are following Jesus. There's probably also value for those who don't follow Jesus. And I'm trying to think about especially for that group of people people who don't follow after Jesus. Part of the value to me of this story is is that you see people who weren't just believers in the cause, but it was the people who started it. And here in Acts four. You get to see how those people, how strongly they were convicted about mm-hmm. the things that they believed and taught. In other words, if you're like, oh, Christianity was just kind of a social movement or a myth that got perpetuated or whatever, actually the history that's being recorded here is not that it was people hundreds of years later, you know, like Joan of Arc or, you know, right. other like kind of famous um, figures who died for the faith or whatever. Uh, but these are the people who started it out. And you see how they dealt with the opposition. And it's pretty compelling, I think, the way they handle themselves in this setting. Yeah, I mean, as you as you go on down through chapter 4, what's remarkable is how flustered and frustrated and angry um, the religious leaders are with the disciples. Of the Jews. Yeah, of the Jews are with the apostles. Um, and what is also remarkable is just how calm and at peace and courageous... Um, the the followers of Jesus are and assertive um, and powerful. Yeah, like that's what I think when you read Acts four, it's like you're pointing out it's this flip of the script because the Jewish council they have all the social power, mm-hmm. they have all the money, they have all the everything, and yet when you read it, they're the ones who are afraid. As you're pointing out, they're the ones who seem really powerless. Where they're having to go in back room meetings, like, what are we gonna do about this, guys? Like, we can't. We can't do anything. Like all we can do is like kind of stomp our feet at them, you know. Whereas the apostles, who were backwater guys who had nothing in terms of social power, <laughs> they're speaking like they run the world. 
That's right. Which is kind of jolting. Yeah, it's kind of shocking. They the when they see the boldness of Peter and John in verse thirteen, they perceive that they were uneducated and common men, and they're astonished. Uh, there's that word again, astonished. They're astonished and they're amazed because what's happening can't happen from uneducated and common men. Like there's there's something going on here that just doesn't make sense to them. How is it that? And then they recognize that they had been with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, that's what Luke is Because it's like they're like, wait a second, didn't we just have somebody like this a few months ago? Yeah. A guy from Nazareth who was a car- carpenter, right? That was his thing? Yeah. yeah. Here we go again. Here it is. Here it is. And 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 what's, what's shocking, too, is for them is they, they're not really in a position, even though they have all the social power, they're not in a position to do anything about it because standing right next to them is... This guy who has just been sitting at the temple for, you know, 30, 20, at least 20, 30 years and, uh, and, and lame. And now he's standing up and walking. And so here's the evidence evidence right in front of them. And I think this is important. Like, so if you're, if you're questioning faith in Jesus or if you're struggling with, uh, should I really believe all this stuff? I, I think this is important. When you read the, when you read the New Testament, one thing that is abundantly clear is that Jesus isn't asking you to believe on the basis of uh, some sort of fairy tale like story that gives no real proof that it's really true or from God. One of the things that actually uh, is stressed all throughout the New Testament, Jesus will say things like this in the Gospel of John. Um, that if you don't believe what I say, look at the works that I do. And if I do the works of God, then, then even if you don't believe my words, believe because of the works. And you see that too with the apostles. The apostles are not just preaching things and saying, hey, believe us because we, we said so. You know, we got this in a cave and we're going to share it with you. Mm-hmm. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is abundant evidence being shown that this is really the power of God. This, this stuff doesn't happen from uneducated common men like these guys. Um, it happens because the power of God is at work. Which, as you pointed out, that's Acts 2. Right. They didn't receive the Spirit in a private kind of way. There was a loud wind, chapter 2 says, right. and there were these tongues of fire. Like, there were these demon, And then they were actually speaking in languages people actually understood, and the people knew, this is impossible. These guys have no ability to learn this stuff. Right. There was evidence, objective evidence that could be observed by an outsider I don't know what's going on here, but I know it's not normal. Yeah. Here again in chapter 3. I don't know how this guy got healed, but I know that this is not normal. This is supernatural power that's happening. And even it's kind of funny, whenever they're standing before the council, the boldness, I know this is a more of a subjective thing than those two objective pieces of evidence, but the council sees these guys are so brave. Why are they brave like that? Like So even their character, there are all these ways that there's this tangible, objective evidence that's being laid out that people can observe and say okay i don't know what's going on but something's happening and the apostles use that opportunity to say well we'll tell you what's happening jesus has come and he reigns from heaven above and he's poured out this gift of his spirit and that means something about what's happening in the universe exactly and 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 this is important because there's kind of a spectrum in this world of uh, of faith right People want to say, well, faith is different than science, or like there's there's you know there's science and then there's faith. But really, all every person lives every day by faith. We all live by faith every day. Um, you know, you you trusted uh, whatever you ate for breakfast. That oatmeal was uh, 
was not uh, contaminated in a way mm-hmm. with poison in it. You, sure. you trust that when you're walking here um, down the street that no car is going to come and, and up on the sidewalk and, and, and knock you, or that when the light turns red, they're actually going to stop and sure. you can cross. You know, we, we all live by faith every day. The question, though, is um, do we have reasonable faith or not? So there's kind of a spectrum of reactions. Like you can have... On the one hand, a lot of people talk about Christians as being, there's blind faith, you know, gull. And there is that type of faith in the world, right? Sometimes people believe things that they really have no evidence for, and we would call that gullible, a blind faith. Um, on the other extreme, though, there, there's, another, there's another kind of faith that is, that is stubborn. That is, it doesn't matter how much evidence you will receive, you're just not going to admit that what is really true. In the middle is where, is where the Bible calls us to be, where the scriptures call us to be, and where Jesus wants people to be. Um, he wants us to have a reasonable faith, a faith that is based upon evidence. He doesn't want us just to be believing things with no reason for it. Um, he also doesn't want us to hear what is clearly true and then reject it and, yeah. be, and stubbornly say, no way, which is what you, you see happening here with the, uh, with the religious leaders. They're jealous they're angry. They're seeking. They're they're upset that these these common uneducated men are getting so much attention, and they're wishing it was on themselves. And so they just stubbornly reject it, in spite of the evidence right in front of them. They know they can't do anything to him. Verse fourteen. They see the man standing there beside them. They had nothing to say in opposition, but yet they won't accept it. They're still going to threaten them. I'll say uh, verse twenty one. They threaten them further. Yeah. They let them go because they could find no basis on which to punish them. So they, That's right. they actually knew there was nothing wrong, but they just refused to believe what exactly. they were saying. And so this is important for us to think about because uh, we've got to ask ourselves, like, is what I believe, is my faith really reasonable or not? Like, mm-hmm. is my faith based upon um, my own feelings or my own desires, or is my faith is my faith based upon real evidence yeah. um, and real proof that has led me to these conclusions? Yeah. So that's that's probably I think the compelling part about this story for those who are either wavering in their faith in the gospel or just reject the gospel outright. Um, and by the way, if you're listening and you have questions to follow up on some of that, please reach out to us, send us a message, let's let's dialogue about that because we may not explain some of that very well or we may be uh, missing some some corners of what we need to talk about with that. But if you flip it back the other way, this story is really valuable for followers of Jesus. Maybe to say, yeah, I do believe in Jesus. But whenever I face opposition, and it may not be as dramatic as getting arrested by the mm-hmm. ruling council of my you know city or whatever, but mm-hmm. when I face opposition amongst my friends or my colleagues or my you know schoolmates or whatever it is, is really hard to be like this, mm-hmm. to be bold, to be um, faithful, to be open about my faith, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, what do you think we get out of this uh, as far as as far as that? What, what do we learn from Peter and John for those who are followers of Jesus to understand how to think about ourselves and the world and our interactions with the world and their opposition? Well, a couple of things. One, they're... Their focus is is not at all upon themselves, mm-hmm. and if you want if you want to find courage, uh, you, you know the world will tell you look within yourself. You know mm-hmm. you can do it. You have you have the ability to do that. But we all know places and and times in our lives where that just that just doesn't work. Um, and even when we think it does work, it often turns out poorly. Sure. Um, that kind of courage by looking within, um, it, it, it can often. Uh, it can often turn out to t- turn out to lead us into uh, into 
um, trouble because because the truth is that we are limited. Like there are things we can't do, and it, as much as much courage as I may have um, that I can climb Mount Everest today, um, that's probably not going to happen because I haven't been in the gym and I I uh, haven't been eating right, and I'm not ready for that kind of a, an adventure. So so one thing that I think you see here is they're they're not looking within. They're actually looking at Jesus and. Uh, interestingly, one well, I was going to point out besides uh, besides not looking within, they also aren't primarily looking at their opposition either. That's right. Right, like they're not really they're not much concerned about that or care about that. That's right. W- which is interesting because one of the things that the Hebrew writer will say one of the, there's only four times where this word is used um, that he mentions in chapter three in verse fifteen. Um, the uh, that you killed the archegos of life, the author of life. One of the places where that is mentioned is in Hebrews 12 and verse 2, where he's talking about, he's been talking about all these people of God who've been, who've been living by faith and dealing with great opposition and great hardship in their life, but because they trusted God, they endured till the end. And he comes to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, and he says, um, in verse 1, I'll start, he says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the archegos, or the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So a couple of things to point out here. Where did Jesus find his courage? Well, he found his courage by fixing his eyes on the joy that was set before him. His eyes were not on himself. His eyes were not on his opposition. His, his eyes were focused on what his, his going to the cross would accomplish. That is the joy of loving us, the joy of saving us, the joy of bringing us back to God. So a woman has courage enough to be impregnated and to go through labor and all the, the challenges that go with that and the pain and the trial. Because of the joy of having her child in her That's arms. Right. The joy of love. Similar to us, or similar to Jesus, even more so, he went through those pains because of the joy set before him. And if we're looking to him, that's what will embolden us, partly at least, is looking forward to what comes next, not to what's happening now. Right. So, so that's what you're seeing with the apostles is they're fixing their eyes on Jesus. What is the joy that's set before us? It's the joy of being back with the Lord mm-hmm. and loving the Lord who has so deeply loved us. The one who went to the cross for us had, inspires us to be able to take up our cross and follow after him. And so... As the apostles are looking at him and their eyes are fixed on him and they're thinking about this servant Jesus, um, they find in him the courage to, to be able to stand up, to speak out, and to tell, to tell their opposition that it is the name of Jesus, that this, by the name of Jesus, that this man has been healed. Um, the one that they crucified. I mean, those are strong words to say to the people that just killed Jesus, right? right. I mean... Yeah. Well, and like literally, like in chapter three, they're talking to just the crowd, right? And everyone's like, "Oh, it's so cool!" Like right. you kind of like feel, "Oh, I've got, I've got all this capital that I can spend right now with this crowd." But once they got arrested at the beginning of chapter four, they get brought into the council. This is not the crowd, and they are against me. Right. Like I knew the other group might have been kind of opposed to the gospel, but they're at least 
maybe willing to listen. Right. These people are in every way telling me, I hate you, I'm against you, I want to murder you, literally. Right. And when you start quoting the Old Testament to the priests right. and say, hey, you know those passages about the builder, uh, the, the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, you know who the builders are? The, that's you. You know, right. when you start saying that, I mean, that's, that's incredible courage. But they have the courage to say that because they know it's true. They, they've seen the evidence of what Jesus has done, what his, him being raised up from the dead. They're eyewitnesses of his resurrection. Mm-hmm. They've watched him go up into heaven. And so they can say with courage uh, something that may be shocking and hard for us to hear, that there is salvation in no one else. Verse 12. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That may be hard for us to swallow, um, but it wasn't hard for them because they'd seen the evidence of that in, uh, in Jesus Christ himself. Yeah, and it seemed like maybe that's another thing that emboldened them. Maybe just an extension of what you already saying, right? They were looking at Jesus, but as they looked at Jesus, what they saw was the only way to survive. Yeah. It was either I'm with Jesus or I'm dead. That's right. Those are the two options for living. It wasn't like I'm with Jesus or I can have social acceptance. And this is a slightly less good version of life. Being with Jesus would be better, but I don't like the pressure so I can settle for being accepted socially or being a part of the crowd or being a part of the world. For them, there's no salvation at all. Like there's nothing apart from Jesus. That's right. And if that's my only option, then I guess I'm just going to do that. That's right. And understanding that actually it was through his rejection and through his suffering and through his death that I found life inspires them also to say, you know what, it may take suffering for me. It may be me being rejected. It may be me being opposed. It may be me even dying that is what's going to bring life to other people. And so I think, I think what you see with the disciples is that the love of Christ has completely uh, compelled them and controlled them and, and transformed them. Mm-hmm. Now, now that their eyes are on Jesus and now they see what the death of Christ has accomplished in their life, that they have been given life through Jesus' death, they're also ready and willing to die. They're ready and willing to die because they know that it's through their suffering and their death and their life that the light of God might shine into the lights of others. We'll see that more as we go deeper into the book of Acts. We'll see you know, real, uh, real life examples of people um, whose lives are saved by the death of disciples. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what you're starting to see here, and I think that's what that's a big part of what emboldens them. And I think that's one of the things that we're missing a lot of times today is we forget that it's not through an easy, comfortable life that people are going to see us and say, "Oh wow, you know, uh, look at Jesus living in them." It's actually when we are facing opposition, when we are going through hardships and sufferings and trials, and we handle that in a way like Jesus with love and grace, kindness, um, with, with no bitterness and resentment, with no hate, hatefulness or complaining. It's actually that those are our opportunities to be able to not only live for Jesus and suffer for his name, but also to be able to bring the same kind of life that he's brought to us to be able to share that life with other people as well. Yeah, and be so strongly committed. I mean, like, these guys are amazing. Verse 19 of chapter 4, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop but speaking about what we've seen and heard. And of course, for them, they literally had seen Jesus and heard Jesus. But, I mean, they were just so committed to this that for them it was like, how could we possibly do this? Mm-hmm. And it would be a violation of God if we gave up on this. Amen, amen.
So at the end of the story in chapter 4, so they end up getting released. Uh, they go back to their brethren, and they all pray together, which is really powerful. We've seen this. This, this story kind of interesting. This story in chapters 3 and 4 begins with prayer. They go to the mm. temple at the hour of prayer, which we talked about last week in the pod, uh, the importance of disciples praying together and all that, and we see that continually throughout Acts. Here they come back to their brethren, and they pray again. What do you see in their prayer here at the end that kind of helps us to understand how to deal with difficulty and opposition and persecution and all that kind of stuff when we're in the world? What do we learn here as we kind of wrap this up with this prayer that they pray? Well, a couple of things. One, um, notice how, how what is strengthening them in their prayer is the Word of God. They're seeing the Word of God come true. What God said long ago in Psalm 2 um, has come to fruition. And again... And you're seeing that in the... In the verse, they quote it. Yeah, in verse 25 and 26, uh, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they go on to say, hey, that's exactly what happened. Uh, the, in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Everybody's gathering together to, to destroy your servant, your anointed one, Jesus. And then they say, hey, they were just doing whatever you had planned and predestined to take place. So they saw scripture as the playbook for the for all of human history and of their world. Yeah. So we're fine. Like, we already knew God. You already told us that... There were going to be people who were going to be opposed to your will, but that you were going to overcome in the end. And we're seeing that again. And again, that's this is part of the evidence that is feeding their faith. It's not just the miracles that were being done. It's also the evidence of God's words written down long before coming to fruition and being fulfilled right in front of their eyes. And as they see all of the old, and it's not just this passage, Psalm 2 is just one of many, many places, that's on their mind. And as they're seeing all this scripture that was written down hundreds of years beforehand coming into fruition in just the way it was written, um, their, their faith is strengthened to be able to trust God. So when, they see, when they're looking at what God did to Jesus and how, or what God did through Jesus and how God overcame the opposition there, they say, hey, look on their threats. Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. Signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Uh, basically, it's like as we see what you've done in the past and we see you fulfilling scripture and we see what you've accomplished, we're strengthened. Mm-hmm. And we're, you just take care of the threats. You take care of us. You give us the strength to go out and keep preaching boldly um, as, as we do your will. And uh, it says when they prayed, the, pl- the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. These are, these are the types of prayers that God gets excited about answering. You right. know? And, uh, and he does answer. He sends them out with even greater boldness as they're filled with the Spirit, speaking with courage. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that I noticed here that I think is powerful is the, the way that they understood their place in the world it seems to me help them to pray this way, to think this way, to live in a way that disregarded all the opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, they say there in verse 29, Now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word 
with all confidence. They looked at themselves as servants of God's purposes. And it wasn't just them. They referred to David in verse 25 as God's servant. And most importantly, they think of Jesus in that way. And as they were fighting, I mean, a lot of this we've been talking about, as we've talked about previously and we're talking about now, it was all of them understanding we're following Jesus, we're following Jesus, we're just following Jesus, we're trying to be like Jesus, we're looking like Jesus. Well, they understood, verse 30, you did all these things through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When you go back to the sermon in chapter 3 that kind of initiated all this stuff, chapter 3 and verse 13, when they introduced Jesus, God has glorified his servant, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then again at the end of the sermon in verse 26 of chapter 3, for you first, God raised up his servant, Jesus, and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Um, and I think that's striking and powerful and important and challenging and kind of life-transforming whenever we start thinking about, hey, Jesus came, as he said, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to take care of the most pressing needs that human beings deal with. Jesus came to save us from our sins, to point us to God, to bring restoration and joy and peace and all those things. And now those of us who follow him, we're supposed to similarly do the will of the Father, obey all things that he commands, accomplish the things that he wants us to accomplish, submit to his will, whatever it may be. And when you think of yourself that way, then whatever happens, you see it as, hey, God's in control ultimately of my life. So bad things happen, I can't give up. I'm like, that's just right. part of the deal. I'm a servant, you know? That's Jesus right. didn't give up and say, Father, this is too hard. No, Jesus said, if it's hard, that makes sense. I'm a servant anyways. Servants have to do hard things. That's right. And so if I'm going to follow Jesus, then I also am going to go through some hard things. And that shouldn't deter me from doing that. And I should understand the great joys that can come not only for me, but also for others. I'm not living for myself. I'm living right. to submit to God's will and to benefit others. Jesus came to bless others, to turn them from their wicked ways. That's what my life should be about, too. Well, exactly. Like, that is the blessing of Abraham, right? The blessing of Abraham that he's talking about in that sermon in, in Acts 3 is that that God would raise up his servant, Jesus, and send him to you to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. And I, I just think about that. There's such significance in that for, for those of us who, who love the Lord and are trying to follow the Lord. Um, a lot of times we think of the blessing as, as the first part of the sermon. Just it's the, it's the sins being blotted out. Um, but Jesus didn't come just to have your to to blot out your sins. You could pass Je- sins. Yeah, yeah, Jesus came to actually totally re- renew you and restore you into a completely different person who doesn't live that way anymore. To make you into His servant who who doesn't continue to walk in wicked ways but now chooses to, to walk in ways that help and, and, and serve other people. Mm-hmm. And so if we can come to embrace that as part of the blessing of God, the blessing of Abraham, is that he's turning us into servants, um, and he's turning us away from our sins and, and into a life of service. Uh, that'll help us, because that's actually the only way to really f- live a fulfilling life. It's the only way to actually find joy and peace that lasts in life, is by... Just like our sir, our Savior becoming a servant. And that joy and peace and goodness and all that stuff is possible no matter what's going on around us or how people are treating us around. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, you got anything else? Good. It's pretty good, right? Um, 
thanks everybody. There's there's probably more stuff um, that we could talk about here, but check it out yourself. Read it, explore it, and send us a message. Let us know what you see, what you're finding, what's powerful to you in this text and these stories. Uh, if there's anything that we can do for you personally, if you have any questions about Scripture generally, we're not just studying the book of Acts. We can talk about anything that you want to talk about, either by email or a message on Facebook to the, the Facebook page or whatever we can do for you, please let us know. And especially if you're in Brooklyn, we offer group and individual Bible studies free of charge. You can come worship with us on a Sunday. We can meet with you and just talk about your life and your faith, even if you don't have much faith. Whatever it is we can do for you, let us know. We're here to help, and we want to do what we can to help you love the Lord and to enjoy Him now and forever. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.